Welcome to Chet Talks, expert insights at the intersection of health and technology. Chet Talks is brought to you by the University of Rochester's Center for Health and Technology, an innovator in clinical research and care. Learn more at chettalks.org. Delighted to be with you uh, today. We have a great uh, guest today, uh, Isaac Galter-Levy is the Chief Scientific Officer at AI Cure. In addition to his role at AI Cure, uh, Isaac is an adjunct professor in clinical psychology and is also a uh, professor at NYU in bioinformatics. Before joining AI Cure, uh, Isaac worked at MindStrong, where he was recruited, I just learned, uh, by Dr. Tom Insel, who used to be the director of the National Institutes of Mental Health. Uh, Isaac, uh, welcome to Chet Talks. Thank you very much for inviting me. I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, you were a budding and promising academic, even had an NIH grant. What led you to what led you to dish academia and go into pursuing digital measures of health? Um, well, um, yeah, you know, yeah. So I, I was at NYU uh, full time. Uh, uh, you know, I, I had a you know pretty pr uh, promising academic career ahead of me. I was uh, funded through NIMH, also receiving funding through the Department of Defense, and doing some you know doing a lot of interesting international work. Uh, and I was running my grant, which was focused on uh, blood and uh, blood biomarkers to predict post-traumatic stress response. So we were recruiting people in Bellevue's emergency room and following them longitudinally and trying to predict the course of, of uh, who will develop PTSD and who won't. So that's a very important uh, uh, problem to solve because uh, only about 10% of people after a major stressor will develop post-traumatic stress or depression. And the ability to spot those at high risk allows you to best route the resources you have available. So that was a big focus of my career. And as I, and my early career award was going really well and it was pretty, it seemed very promising that I was uh, gonna be able to advance uh, to the next stage. So I was in the process of submitting an R01 to really advance this work. And I was trying to understand how to actually track the clinical course of, of a population because we had spent so much time focusing on how to model the biological predictors, genetics, epigenetics, imaging targets, but our clinical definitions really hadn't changed for about 50 years. So at the end of the day, as somebody interested in mathematics and computational modeling, I knew that, you know, anywhere in your equation, if you have error, you're not really able to find a relationship. So in the context of PTSD, for example, you know, the way we define the disorder is through a hodgepodge of different symptoms that can be combined a lot of different ways, which produces really untenable heterogeneity. So for instance, in PTSD DSM-5 definition, there's over 600,000 different presentations of PTSD if you combine the symptoms different ways. So if you're trying to look at predictors or you're trying to look at treatment response, uh, you're really going to be very limited. So I was very attracted to the RDOC ideas around creating more uh, specific clinical definitions that map onto our understanding of underlying neurobiology. That's how we better understand treatment and prediction. And I was uh, literally about a week from submitting my R01 uh, when my program officer recommended I reach out to Tom Insel at MindStrong and ask uh, if I could use the app they were developing in my, in my uh, um, upcoming study. And uh, she connected me with him and I talked to him on the phone and he said, he, you know, he talked to me about my research and he said, to be honest, you know, what you wanna do with your career, I think you would have more impact if you came out here and worked with us. And uh, why don't you join our team? We just have launched this company. Um, so I went out there, I think I was employee number six at MindStrong. Uh, I was re originally recruited uh, primarily to be in the data science team. So to be building clinical models and bi uh, digital biomarker measurements and cognition. I ended up working in a lot of different areas across MindStrong. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a very, very exciting time to go out there and learn, you know, really a suite of tools. So for those who don't know, MindStrong develops digital measures for a wide range of psychiatric conditions, especially around uh, depression and others. Uh, what did you do at MindStrong? So, uh, so my first job there was really to work on our digital biomarker models. So what we were doing was we were cap capturing keystroke activity. So the rate of texting, amount of errors, things like that. Really the computer, human computer interaction with the cell phone as the method to track uh, cognitive and emotional functioning. So when people are uh, under stress, they, uh, you know, uh, their cognition is impacted, their mood is impacted. And the hypothesis at that time was that it would be reflected 
connected and how they interact with technology. Human beings now are constantly interacting with technology. You know, really what our cognitive and psychological tests are is how do we interact with, say, a human being or paper and pencil. Um, and so what we were building were these, uh, these models to basically track cognition in a passive way using uh, cell phone readouts and identify when patients, for example, are at risk for relapse um, or, or, or likely to be hospitalized. So originally I was building those models and then I moved on to uh, helping to design the product around that, um, going out to clinics to understand you know, how patients would actually use it, how clinicians would use it. So really end to end, how do you build, take a, a model that's promising and turn it into a technology that can really impact the patient. What measures of cognition were most interesting or most informative? So we saw a lot of effects, a lot of rapid changes in just working memory, executive functioning. Um, you know, we saw that with uh, patients as they started to uh, become stressed, as they started to uh, relapse, for example, we would see changes in cognition. And then that would cue a clinician who would have access to a dashboard to then reach out and interact with that patient. The next what, thing that we really did, yes, sir, go ahead. And what, what were those changes? What were they on a smartphone? Was it changes in text? Was it changes in voice? What were the changes that you were observing? So it, it was all based on, uh, you know, our primary data source was all just text message. So it was just literally how fast were you text? So we created a very large number of features out of how you used your cell phone. So how often you hit delete, how many errors you made, how many, you know, um, uh, how, how your rate of texting, which changes all the time, those turned out to be very accurate proxies for many different domains of cognition. Um, you know, the other major task we had was actually to build some, uh, you know, chatbot type functions to actually interact with patients uh, uh, over a sm smartphone, over text. So, you know, as patients were distressed, they would reach out to us and we would want to automate as much of the early interaction to assess what was, what was the significant problems they're having so we could best route them to the clinician that they needed. Um, so I was involved in some of the early development of those, um, you know, those clinical decision-making, automated AI-driven clinical decision-making uh, uh, chatbots, which now are much, very much the core of the company. Um, Why did you leave? Um, you know, I left uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, so when I went out there, I was, it was an extremely um, exciting and intense experience. You know, I went from being uh, a clinical researcher who was good at building computational models, but in effect, I would have a static data set and I build, you know, some result and I would publish that paper and I'm done with it. And then I went out there and really my job was to build a scalable software where you're pulling in data uh, at a continuous rate, passing it through models, having decision-making on top of that, routing it to clinicians. So I was learning an enormous amount about how you actually build a scalable technology to impact patients' lives. Uh, at that time, computer vision models were really taking off. So uh, computer vision are, are models that allow you to analyze visual data. Going back about six or seven years, their accuracy was about 70% to, to uh, predict if something, for example, is a chair or not. When I was uh, out in Palo Alto, everybody was playing with these methods because a number of new breakthroughs in, in machine learning had happened that had facilitated very accurate coding. Um, and so I had been very interested in what are the visual and auditory signs and symptoms that we already know about, can we code them? So for example, uh, facial tremor. We know what facial tremor looks like. Can we build a model of that? If we can, then we can have a very accurate readout of a clinical interaction. Uh, you can model other types of neurological and psychiatric um, symptoms, like uh, a good example is uh, uh, eye blinks. You know, eye blink rate and intensity is impaired in a number of different disorders, but if you ask a clinician to count the number of eye blinks, that during a clinical interview, that's extremely uh, labor intensive and probably impossible. So I really liked the idea of instead of replacing uh, the, uh, you know, the sort of clinical understanding that we already had with new, you know, new signals, you know, maybe there's a signal in how you text for cognition or for emotion. What are the characteristics that we already know about that clinicians are already trained to observe? Can we build models to support their measurement? So, you know, as a clinician, you interview a patient, you ask them how they're doing, and you see on their face, you hear in their voice how they're doing. You know, I can see a depressed patient, I can see somebody with psychosis. It's very easy to identify. Can we build models to support that? 
the rev and tell us you want to show us a little bit about the work that you're doing at AI Cure. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'll show you um, uh, just a little bit. Um, uh, you know, this isn't a fully formulated slideshow, but um, I'll, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So what we do is we uh, deploy uh, simple little tasks over a cell phone so patients can can uh, uh, do them. We could, we work with we do this in clinical trials quite a bit. So we work with sponsors to understand when and how they want to assess. And we can ask open-ended questions like, uh, "How have you been doing in the past few hours?" Uh, just to get an open-ended response from them, both in their face and their voice. Uh, we show them different types of positive and negative images. We can ask them, for example, to smile and hold it for five seconds to measure tremor um, or or psychomotor uh, retardation. And then we use that to uh, to capture a number of different parameters. So um, here, I'll give you an example. So this is just a model of facial tremor. Uh, so this is a patient with tremor. Uh, this is actually taken from YouTube. And what you can see is the tremor, this is in their uh, right and left lip and their jaw. We see quite a lot of tremor. And then their nose and uh, upper lip, we don't see much tremor. Here is, uh, uh, here's an example of, of voice tremor. Many of these methods are very well characterized. Uh, we, we do what all scientists do. We look at the existing scientific literature, what's been validated, and then try to spin it up and validate it over, for collection over a cell phone platform. Here's actually measuring asymmetric masking. So you're, what you're gonna look at is the difference between the left and right side of Muhammad Ali's face, uh, his mouth, eyebrow, and eye. And this is the asymmetry between the two. So you can measure the different sides of the face and different landmarks to capture those types of characters. Oh, you, you gotta go back there, man. That, that was the greatest, that's the greatest there. So you gotta like, you know, walk us through that a little bit. So they, like Muhammad Ali's right face was far more expressive than his. Well, here, I'll show you this one where I'm gonna compare him to, to, uh, to 30 years ago. Um, so here's a, here's a healthy person on the left. They have very little facial tremor. On the right, we see a lot of tremor. This is actually Deshana who built these models. Uh, vocal tremor, uh, here's somebody without tremor. And we can see a significant difference. And then here's, here's that example. So here's Muhammad Ali actually talking about the same fight 30 years earlier. And this is the asymmetry in his face. And then here he is 30 years later talking about the rumble in the jungle. And we can see a marked increase in the asymmetry between the two sides of his face. Well, so, you gotta, you gotta walk us through that. So I, you know, I, I on the video like really fast maybe we can slow that down and then uh, what am i supposed to be looking at the graph what's so, what's so i don't know if i can slow it down but what you're literally ma mapping here is how much does his mouth on the left side and the right side match move together how much does his eyebrow on the left and right side move together how much do his eyes move together uh this is a known symptom in parkinson's which is asymmetric masking where one side becomes more flat than the other over time you get overall masking which you can also measure as just literally the amount the face is moving so these types of measurements are very appealing to us because these really get to transdiagnostic neurological uh symptoms uh that are relevant in a number of different disorders so our ability to measure the amount of expressivity or activity on someone's face, we see effects in major depressive disorder. So uh, as patients get healthier, they actually increase in their amount of expressivity. As a clinician, that's probably not a surprise. Um, um, in Parkinson's, you get this uh, masking, you also get tremor. So I'll give you an example, actually. So hold on, just stay on, on here, Isaac. So is, is, the, is one showing would be perfect symmetry and then scores above one would be increases in asymmetry? Yeah, so as the score increases, we don't have a cutoff for what is healthy and, and not healthy asymmetry. We don't have those definitions yet, which I think is a very important reason why we have to be collecting this kind of data, because we have definitions for, for cutoffs for sickness and health based on clinical rating scales. So I can say, you know, on the HAMD, if you're above this score, you're depressed, that um, we've defined those cutoffs. We really don't have cutoffs yet for things like actigraphy. You know, what is a cutoff on actigraphy that tells me a patient is depressed? Or what is a level of asymmetry based on a model that tells me uh, that the, uh, you know, this is unhealthy? The way that we use these kind of markers, particularly in clinical trials, is as a within subjects variable. So you can ask the question, does, for example, the amount of facial expressivity change in response to uh, treatment? Or does the amount of vocal tremor change in response to treatment? 
So I can give you an example actually here. These are patients with essential tremor who are, being, who are on a medication and being evaluated longitudinally on the TETRAS. And what you're looking at here in, in green, this is actually our model of their vocal tremor. And we see a significant decrease. And what you see below it is actually the overall TETRAS scores uh, for, uh, for uh, clinician rating and decentralized video rating. And what we see is that uh, we get a significant effect for uh, vocal tremor decrease on this metric consistent with the overall TETRAS. You know, another so kind just, of- we're gonna, We gotta walk through people. Uh, so uh, Isaac still has academic uh, routes there. And I'm a neurologist, so I understand a little bit of this, but uh, so essential tremor is a disorder that's characterized by a, an action tremor in people's hand, head, and voice. And what you're showing in green is that their voice tremor uh, improved over the course of this study. That's right. In orange was their score on TETRAS, a rating scale, which really showed minimal change. That's right. That video assessments of trem a voice tremor, for example, are more sensitive than clinician-derived rating scales. Yeah, so I'll, so I'll, I'll talk this through slower uh, to your point, Ray. So what you're like, yeah, exactly. So green is our model. These are taking videos that decentralized radar videos of patients in an active treatment for essential tremor. And what you're looking at is our model is in green. So that's the decrease we see based on our model. In blue is actually the in-person raters. So they're more sensitive than than what you're seeing in orange, which is the videos are sent out to a reviewer who then scores them independently. So what we're seeing is that the in-person rater is more sensitive than the uh, remote rater, and our, our models are actually more sensitive than both uh, because we can directly met quantify the amount of tremor. And I think this is an important point about measurement. You know, we lose a lot of sensitivity because our measures are not actually real numbers, they're ranking scores. So if I say somebody has a tremor on a scale of one to four, that's a ranking. I lose a lot of sensitivity that way. Now, if I'm actually quantifying the amount of tremor on someone's face or in their voice, I can create a real number score, which is by definition more sensitive than a ranking. Um, and so we're going to get more sensitivity just by objectively modeling the data rather than depending on a clinician's interpretation uh, and putting it on a scale that uh, doesn't have a, a, you know, a real zero. So a couple of things, you're going from a categorical rating scale to a continuous measure with your video rating. Uh, in addition, your video rating is independent of a clinician. This is the computer uh, making yeah. uh, the rating completely independent right. of the clinician. Is that correct? That's right, that's right. So, so we're modeling the tremor by actually um, um, looking at changes in uh, facial position from frame to frame. So when we're measuring with video, we capture at a rate of between, over a cell phone, we can capture between 30 and 60 frames per second, depending on the technology. So at that rate, you're moving almost as quickly as the actual physiology itself, which means you really have no data loss. You really are able to actually measure correctly every moment of tremor on a person's face compared to a clinician who's sitting with a patient trying to observe tremor while taking in a lot of other information and then putting it on a scale that isn't a real number scale. So, the, so there's some inherent limitations in that, in that type of measurement that can be overcome with these kind of models. Great, and we're, we're getting some questions in our Q&A, so please uh, put the questions in if you wanna go geeky. Uh, Isaac is happy to go geeky, and if you're more like me and you want to like say, what does this all mean, uh, feel free to uh, put it in English too. Uh, continue on, Isaac. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So here, let me just show one more slide, which is in MDD. Um, so this is uh, patients recruited Depression. major depressive disorder, exactly, and they were, they were recruited and then did a course of standard SSRIs. And what we did is we, we followed them longitudinally. They were assessed on the MADRAS, which is a standard scale for depression, which you see in red. The patients are, are decreasing in their MADRAS scores. What you're looking at in black is three measures of facial expressivity. This is just literally how much is their face moving. So once again, in major depressive disorder, we get a symptom known as psychomotor retardation, really these underlying motor abnormalities that come with depression, where people are very much slowed down, their voice slows down, they talk less, their face moves less, 
Um, and so what we see here is significant decrease in the madras, which maps on with significant increase in facial expressivity when we show people positive, negative, and neutral images. Uh, we see the same thing in terms of- Hold on, so, so, yeah. so the neutral image, like positive image is a flower, and neutral image is-, is... Yeah, uh, yeah a, a positive image could be, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a parent with their kid smiling, something that evokes a positive response has been standardized to evoke a positive response. A neutral image can be something like, you know, a picture of the coral reef that doesn't really have much register. A negative image could be something like a violent or disturbing scene that tends to provoke negative responses. And then we can look at just literally how much do people respond. So human beings, we respond with emotion constantly. We show different facial expressions all the time. So I can tell how interesting I am right now by reading Ray's face, right? Uh, this is just a human activity. The first person to actually write about human emotion um, as a biological process that's meant for communication was Charles Darwin. It was his second book after On the Origin of Species was on human emotion as a, as a evolutionarily evolved characteristic that is meant for communication. So it's, 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 it's not surprising it's easy to register and, and measure directly. Now, what I like about this type of measurement is that it really starts to let us move beyond these categories like depression or Parkinson's or, you know, and really start talking about underlying, um, uh, uh, you know, pathophysiology of the disorder. So we see that uh, psychomotor retardation in many different disorders. We see tremor in many different disorders. If we can monitor that correctly, then we can start thinking about our treatments also transdiagnostically. So if I'm reading this again, is that, uh person with depression, you started them on an antidepressant, uh, their rating scale in red got better over five weeks. And correlating with the improvements on the rating scale were increases in expressivity in response to a variety of images over the same five weeks. One requires a rater, a trained rater to do this assessment. The other one requires nothing but a smartphone. Exactly. So we capture about, it takes about uh, two minutes it can be done remotely over a smartphone, uh, exactly. So another example of that here, this is just how much are people talking? You know, so we ask them this open-ended question, what have you been doing in the past two hours? Just to get them to talk. And we're looking at literally how much space is there between words. So depressed patients also have that, you know, they slow, their speech slows down quite a bit, also due to that same psychomotor retardation. So they literally talk slower. And so we can count the white space between words. And what you're looking at here is that same MADRA score going down. And then what you see going up is literally uh, the rate of speech. So the patients are increasing in how fast they talk um, in response to the SSRI. So uh, I'm going to slow you down here. The y-axis is, what's the y-axis here? So the y-axis here, we've created a normalized score so that we could put these on the same scale. Uh, so, you know, rate of speech, uh, you know, we could do a, a simple count, but you know, the madras is on a, uh, I think a one to 30 scale or something like that. So they are sort of, to make the graph look correct, we put, we normalize the two scores. And, but what are you counting for speech? Are you counting number of words per second? Are you counting duration of pause between words? Yeah, yeah. So it's the ratio of the, the pause to to actual speech. So what's increase so what's decreasing is the pause between words, and so the word the, the actual the amount of speech in, in some segment is increasing. And can you count the number of words somebody speaks in over a recording? Yes, yes. So it's actually pretty pretty uh, trivial at this point. Uh, natural language processing and recording voice is very very accurate now because. Uh, you know, any of you guys who have Alexa or any of these device connected devices, they use, they're used to train, train models. So now we can very, very accurately count words. We can very accurately transcribe language for analysis. Uh, many of these methods, you know, we haven't invented at AI Cure. These are methods that are out there and are accessible. So yeah, you can literally count words. You can code them for emotional valence. Um, so you can, once again, in depression, you could say, or, or Parkinson's, anything with mood symptoms, you can actually measure uh, what is the valence of someone's speech and how does that change in response to treatment. Uh, so many of these methods are very accessible and, and even off the shelf at this point.
Well, perfect. I, I got a research project uh, question for you uh, after a chat okay. talk. But continue. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, so, so yeah, so, so that is the general approach is to say, you know, um, what clinicians do is that they interact with patients, you know, a patient comes to you, you ask them how you're doing, you collect an enormous amount of information because you have a model, you have a psychological model that you developed in your training and you say, oh yeah, that person, you know, so I worked in a state mental hospital, you could very easily identify a psychotic patient who's acutely psychotic their language is confused, their speech is erratic, they look agitated, uh, so they're moving a lot. Uh, these are characteristics that we can directly measure now. Similarly, on the other end of the spectrum, we can measure uh, slowing. So one area we do a lot of work is in negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Once again, you get very flattened face um, in schizophrenia. It, it, to, to, to my previous point, the mechanism is, is, is much the same right across these different disorders. And so by moving to measure outcome measurements that are transdiagnostic, we can start to look at underlying biological mechanisms uh, that really map across disorders. And so treatments can be relevant across many different disorders. You know, so it's not a surprise, you know, um, many of our, our, our drugs are used off-label for other indications. Um, you know, antipsychotics are prescribed in people with depression uh, quite commonly, and it's because these categories are, you know, uh, are manufactured. Uh, but the direct symptomatology that clin clinicians observe is real um, and, and cuts across disorders. Um, I, so we're getting some questions about the rate of change of these uh, markers. Uh, there seems to be a fair amount of standard error, so kind of hard to tell which one's more sensitive or less sensitive, but in general, do you find that your digital measures are more, uh, more sensitive to therapeutic effects or are the paper and pencil rating scales more sensitive to these uh, pharmacological effects? Yeah, I mean, well, so it sort of gets into a tricky problem of what does, uh, you know, what are the rating scales measuring and then what, what, is, what is sensitively changing, for example. So in major depressive disorder, for example, if you look at a standard measure of depression, let's say the HAMD, you have a hot, you have a you have a, a set of symptoms that um, you know mechanistically may not even relate to each other. So, for instance, you have mood symptoms, you have sleep symptoms that can go either direction: hypersomnia, insomnia. Uh, you have gastrointestinal symptoms. You have uh, guilt uh, symptoms. And so, what changes in response to regulation of serotonin? which one of those markers really makes sense changing in response to serotonin. Some may, some may not. So if you have a measure that's very heterogeneous, it's very hard to actually identify change because you may actually be very accurately targeting certain symptoms and not others. And so overall your effect washes out. So PTSD, where I started my research is a very good example of that. Because the diagnosis is so heterogeneous, because we've included so many different symptoms, because in effect, a lot of bad things can happen to you psychologically after a traumatic event. Uh, it's very, very hard to track change uh, because you may actually have significant change in areas like arousal that have some specific underlying neurobiological substrates and not changes in mood symptoms. And actually, I understand mechanistically how to affect arousal and how to affect mood, and they're not necessarily, they're overlapping to some degree, but then somewhat not. So if I can better understand what it is I'm trying to target, I could actually select people better for treatment, and I could actually track the effect of a treatment. So the question of sensitivity is sort of an interesting one because sens what is sensitivity to what? Um, you, know, uh, you know, the definitions of, of, of psychiatric disorders are, you know, um, really they, they, they predate the, the biology that we're trying to manipulate or our knowledge of biology we're trying to manipulate. We're getting a couple of questions around privacy, not surprising. Uh, uh, people are knowingly giving you these videos, I assume. I some assume these are being reviewed by IRBs. Uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, photo I, video, I assume, was in the public domain. Did you get an IRB review? Uh, for <laughs> so, the, so, so all the demos we showed here, we used YouTube videos. Uh, so YouTube may sue us, but, uh, but we did it so that we did to step around PHI issues. Now, Importantly, PHI is a, a really major issue. You're capturing video, which is very risky. 
You know, so I can claim no credit for this. This is really, um, you know, one of the major reasons that I came to AI Cure. They were interested in these, in measuring, you know, uh, uh, you know, digital measurements of clinical functioning uh, to look at dose response relationships. So AI Cure was already measuring uh, adherence using video. Um, so, they, so they use direct uh, observed therapy where patients, the app opens up when it's time for, reminds people when it's time to take their medication and they take the pill uh, uh, via the smartphone uh, and we recognize the pill and we recognize ingestion using AI. That itself is a digital marker of ingestion. It's a, it's a proxy measure that tells us this person took the medication. Because uh, that technology has already been built by AI Cure, and we're working with the majority of large pharmaceutical companies to track adherence internationally, we had already worked out, and not we, this was before I came to the company, had already worked out all the legal regulatory issues around capturing that kind of data, which really at the end of the day is uh, you know, a major impediment to this sort of thing moving forward. You know, as I said, many of the models we use are accessible and off the shelf, but the ability to capture this kind of data, transport it, analyze it in a study happening in the Ukraine, for example, um, really requires some very complicated infrastructure uh, that AI Cure had really figured out before I had arrived. And uh, people are again are giving consent to have their videos. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So they're fully consented, they're read in. Oftentimes with these digital biomarker studies, we're invited to uh, patient advisory boards ahead of the study to get patients feedback about their comfort. Now, one thing that has been very interesting to me, working in both the area of passive data collection at MindStrong and active data like this at AI Cure, is that patients tend to be actually much more comfortable with these data sources because uh, in effect, they are aware they're providing data every time that they do. So just like uh, people are very comfortable telling their clinicians all kinds of things because you establish a rapport with your patient and they come to you and they're willing to divulge information, we very much think that collecting data remotely has to create a similar type of rapport. You have to create trust in your patient. You have to have them know what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Uh, now you get the benefit of capturing lots and lots of data uh, and not necessarily, you know, so it's harder to game it. Um, but, but aside from that, we think that, you know, that kind of active interaction, um, you know, allows patients to have more buy-in and we hear that actually in our user testing. The Digital Medicine Society, our friends there at Dime have created a, a, a library of uh, clinical trials that are using digital endpoints as outcome measures. Um, even today, Few clinical trials are using digital measures uh, as outcome measures. Is that going to change in, in the COVID world? Um, I think, you know, I think probably everybody has noticed, uh, you know, a really rapid change um, with, with, with the onset of COVID in terms of the use of technology in healthcare. You know, these, these ideas that were really nice to have a few months ago are now becoming essential. So my typical interaction you know, before COVID-19 was, you know, the, the, the tech innovation guy that the large pharmaceutical company hired to figure out where the company's going in the future, who, you know, the clinical trialists didn't want to really listen to because they knew how they wanted to do it and they didn't want to change it up. You know, those are the people who wanted to hear about these measures and wanted to experiment with them, but had a lot of trouble moving them into trials because, you know, FDA doesn't recognize them yet. Uh, validation is a long process. And, um, and uh, you know, they were, just weren't very motivated to do things differently. What I'm seeing across these companies is those digital innovation guys are getting promoted. They have a more central role and everyone's trying to figure out how do I make my trial digital in a hurry? <laughs> and FDA is doing a really good job of saying, you know, we need to open things up and we really need to be progressive right now. And so all of those, agents are converging at the same time where a lot of the technology already exists. The same thing with telehealth. You know, the technology existed, we were just not subjectively comfortable with it. So at NYU, for instance, we've had, you know, virtual urgent care for like three or four years. And I myself didn't like using it. I felt that it was realer to go and talk to a clinician in person. And all of a sudden my attitude has fully changed. My daughter had a virtual, you know, health meeting yesterday. And, you know, once you're doing remote, once you're doing remote interactions with patients, the next obvious thing is how do you measure patient functioning? 
how do you measure it yeah. accurately? We're going to go to questions in just a second. Can you give an example of a study that's uh, now incorporating one of uh, your digital measures as an outcome measure? Yeah, so we're actually in a number of different studies. We're in a study of, uh, uh, we're in a phase three study of uh, Parkinson's disease where we're treating both early and late uh, Parkinson's patients to look at uh, uh, some of these more sensitive measures like facial and vocal tremor. Um, we are in a study of major depressive disorder also that is uh, actually a completely virtual trial. Uh, so they're using our technology and some other technologies So really we're ahead of the game in terms of how do I make a trial virtual. Uh, we're working in the area of negative symptoms of schizophrenia as well. But really because of our focus on really transdiagnostic markers, we're able to go a lot of different places. So we're starting to develop studies in areas like autism, areas outside of traditional neurological or psychiatric disorders, but that have, uh, you know, CNS side effects like say stroke or, or even oncology. Um, you know, so really if you're thinking about, you know, what is the output of the central nervous system in terms of behavior and physiology, there's an enormous range of areas where either the primary effects of the treatment or even side effects are really relevant to measure digitally. And it sounds like up for depression and schizophrenia, are you using facial videos? Is that the outcome that you're using? And voice. So we're analyzing three different, so we really do three different things. We analyze the video for facial expressions, different emotions, their intensity, movement parameters. So how much do people literally move around? So for instance, people with negative symptoms of schizophrenia stand very still, they don't move very much. We also measure voice measures like pitch, tone, rate of speech. And we also analyze the natural language. So uh, what is the valence of their speech? Um, you know, so patients with schizophrenia use a lot more negative language. Their negative language is invariant to context. So if I show a negative image and ask you to describe it, you talk about it in a negative way. If I show you a positive image and describe it, you talk about it in a negative way. That's, if anybody's ever interacted or had depression, that's not unfamiliar. Um, you know, so really not variant to context. So can we create that context on the phone and measure it? Uh, Rachel Francine asks, how are you measuring vocal tremors in your current study? Right. So there's a number of different, uh, the, the short answer is our approach to measuring vocal tremor is probably not different from most people who are trying to mo model vocal tremor. So there's a number of different features that are relevant to capture a vocal tremor and then we combine them into a bigger, into a, a you know, multivariate model that increases accuracy. So we can measure pitch, tone, uh, you know, any number of other uh, vocal parameters and then train a model to match it to, uh, to a level of tremor. We can actually uh, uh, experimentally evoke different types of tremor. So for instance, you can uh, put a device that tremors someone's uh, throat to actually create tremor at different frequencies so they create a real number. We did the same thing with our hand tremor models. So what we initially did, because we, we, we thought that the clinical scores would be challenging to train against, we actually uh, uh, had healthy people and we passed different frequencies of electricity through their hand to increase the tremor. And so we knew the real voltage and so we could train against that as our sort of base model. And then we actually improved those models against real clinical scores. Uh, what other populations do you work with besides uh, depression, uh, PD, and psychosis? Yeah, so um, so we're, we're very quickly moving into a lot of different areas, uh, both in psychiatric and neurological conditions and, and uh, areas outside of, of psychiatry and neurology. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're building models in a lot of different areas very quickly. A good example is just in the last few weeks, for obvious reasons, we spun up models of cough frequency and intensity. You know, once again, it's the same vocal features. Uh, we train up a model and we validate it. Um, and already people are interested for a number of different indications. We're working on physiological models. Uh, I know you have some colleagues at Rod University of Rochester doing similar types of work where you can model actually using video, you can measure things like a, a heart rate or respiration by looking at breathing patterns in someone's chest. Um, so we're working in a number of different areas and a number of different indications. And we've only been at it for about, you know, I've been at AIT here about a year and a half. Uh, so really, you know, it tends to it tends to follow a pretty predictable path where we, you know, we have a set of models and then we validate it against some clinical data. 
um, in a certain indication, and that leads to a number of different, um, you know, um, sponsors being interested in using those as, as uh, endpoints. So shout out to Dr. J.P. Kuderik, who's shown that video can identify atrial fibrillation by looking yeah. at changes in pulsations in the face. And shout out to our colleague, Asan Hoke, who's developing a video analytics platform for assessing Parkinson's disease. On yeah. that note, Marlon DeCambre, apologize for any mispronunciation, says, do you know where Muhammad Ali was in that first picture? Uh, and where was that relationship to his uh, history of concussions? Uh, so the first one, um, I actually knew this. Um, I'm trying to remember. So both of the interviews were uh, him talking about the rumble in the jungle. And I think that that one, the video was actually before the fight. So there was a press, it was it was an interview about the fight that was going to happen, and then you know so um, I can't tell you exactly where he was in his disease progression, but I can say it was earlier. <laughs> you know? And so the rumble in the jungle was uh, Muhammad Ali fighting George Foreman, a young uh, George Foreman, a very dangerous young George Foreman, and I think it was done in Zaire, if I'm recalling. That's right. That's right. And correctly. George and George Foreman was, you know, the problem, if anybody remembers, was George Foreman was slow, but an incredibly hard puncher. And so that's where he invented the rope-a-dope, right? Where he leans back and let George Foreman punch him in the, so he trained up his, his stomach to be able to take a lot of hits <laughs> and wore him out. And so if you want to learn about concussions and Parkinson's disease, a shameless plug for our book, uh, Ending Parkinson's Disease. It talks about Muhammad Ali. It talks about concussions. It talks about the risk of uh, Parkinson's in uh, football players, uh, among uh, other uh, topics, uh, endingpd.org. We have a whole uh, series of webcasts on it. Um, Follow-up question, uh, same uh, person. Is there an argument for in-person rather than virtual visits for some of your uh, technologies? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that people are really interested, you know, with, this, uh, with these technologies is using them for screening and really to confirm screening. So that example that I showed you of, uh, you know, how does the in-person versus the remote rater, how well do they compare to each other? This is kind of a thing we've known for a while with ECOA is that remote raters, you know, um, they, they, they lose a lot of the nuance and their scores tend to be a, a little less subtle. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we've actually been doing quite a bit is just, you know, rescoring uh, in-person video ratings. So, you know, can we confirm and use that for, say, screening? You know, so the clinician said, you know, this person had this much tremor. What does your model say? You know, we're trying to make a decision about, you know, whether to enroll this person or not. You know, um, there's many instances where people don't want to use a smartphone platform. So a good example is, you know, we're approached occasionally about studies in autism with children, where you can look at characteristics like, you know, uh, once again, you know, facial characteristics of emotion, attentional patterns, people's eyes, where are they going? Um, but those tend to be with a clinician, a type of interaction and, and tend not to work well over a smartphone. So we've really built the capabilities to take in videos and analyze them the same way. I really think about the models we've built, the back end, the engine really to be the important part, you know, because that's, you know, the ability to take video and audio, pass it through a set of models and output clinical insights is really the value I see. So I think we're gonna to go to the speed round now. I know you're not a speedy guy, but we're going speed round because the questions are coming in. All right, I'll go fast. Speech sparseness in speech. How do you distinguish the individual's voice from other speakers? Yeah, so this is a really, so this actually gets to most of the problems with collecting remote data is not so much the models, because like I said, a lot of these models are out there in the world. It's really how do you deal with those types of problems when you really are not observing directly? So we have to do things like uh, use algorithms that can differentiate one person's voice from another or separate a voice from background noise. When you're dealing with patients, especially psychiatric patients, they don't necessarily follow all the rules. So, so you may have patients who are talking while the TV is going in the background. How do I know? Am I measuring your mood or I'm measuring the mood of the character on the show. <laughs> you know, these are big differences. So we have to do a lot of data clean. Same thing with the facial characteristics, actually. You know, if you're not in enough light, I can't measure anything. So I have to be able to detect. I need to be able to prompt a patient to do the right, right things for the assessment because I really don't have a clinician in the, or a human in the mix. Um, so uh, John Gerdreau asked that exact same question. How dependent is the face expression data on background lighting, distance from camera to face, camera quality, and other distractions? 
Yeah. Uh, so, so there is. How do you standardize? Yeah, so there is some real pluses to cell phone-based assessment. You know, the native way we interact with a video on our phone is literally about six inches from our face, face on. So that allows us to actually do a lot of pretty impressive things. So for example, we can track pupils well enough to know if somebody is looking at their screen or not. So we can measure, for example, attentional patterns. You know, in patients with autism, are they, if I show a, a social scene versus a non-social scene, how much do they look at that versus look away? I can do that kind of thing because the, the native interaction is actually my friend there. But um, we also have a lot of built-in sensors and a lot of built-in methods to actually improve those measurements already native to your cell phone. So, you know, right, you know, right now when you're, you know, on your cell phone, you're not seeing a lot of movement artifacts, you know, and that's actually because of algorithms that are native to iPhone or Android. Um, but, you know, additionally, we have algorithms that we've built at AI Cure, for example, that make you have your face in a frame. And if you move it out, it will tell you move your face back in the frame. And those were really developed for the adherence platform because we had those kind of, kind of fundamental problems already. Uh, you're not very good at the 30 second rule, but we'll get you better. Okay, 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 I promise. Uh, Matt Eagles, are the measurements taken once a day during the example for Parkinson's? Uh, some of these diseases change in seconds or do you have to follow a videotape, video record them all day to get a true reflection? So we don't video record all day. Uh, you know, what we're doing right now in, in the Parkinson's trial that we're in is we actually are allowing patients to, uh, to uh, turn it on when they're in an off period. So, uh, this, so we measure twice a day because there's variation within the day, of course, but we also allow the patient to just, uh, when they're having a, uh, their worst incident, to actually turn it on and do the assessment. Uh, we see that as a big advantage over, you know, in clinic where you really are just stuck with whenever they come in. Um, Thomas uh, Sablinski uh, says, great work AI Cure. Can you define uh, digital biomarker short and simple in a way that can be understood by laymen like VC investors? Yes. Oh, so, so digital biomarkers is a catchy phrase, but really what digital biomarkers are is a digital measurement of a biological phenomena. So, uh, so, so I would say that- Digital measure of a biological phenomenon. That's what I would say. Beautiful. Uh, uh, Mr. Shaw, I think, uh, how does this technology work if the video is choppy or the internet is weak in developing countries? Yeah, so what we do at AI Cure, this is a short answer that is actually a solution anyone should use, is the app actually captures the video even if you don't have Wi-Fi and then uploads it when you have Wi-Fi. So you'll have the same problem with Zoom, you'll, it'll be too choppy, um, any kind of thing that's on real time. So what you need to do is build an app that actually captures the video and then uploads it. Uh, Leah Holman asks, "What's your policy on sharing the models you developed? Are they published where other are they published where other researchers could potentially deploy them?" Yeah. So everything that we develop, we try to publish. Um, we we you know uh, publication doesn't take isn't overnight, but we try to do that. Our goal is actually to make all of our models uh, uh, open open source and available. We think that the only way science advances is to be is to share definitions and share code and share knowledge. So really with all of these models, that is our goal to create methods where our pipeline in effect is open source and people can, can evaluate it and add to it, hopefully. And what's, then what's, your, what's your secret sauce or what do you guys, uh, if you're making the code open source, what's your value? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have a very sci strong scientific team that can build these models. We also have the capabilities to deploy them, you know, almost anywhere in the world in a clinical trial in a HIPAA GDPR compliant way. That's enormously valuable. So that's what we see. And we are able to help people understand the data. John Goudreau, uh, are any drugs or therapies being approved using a digital biomarker as a primary endpoint? No. Um, and uh, not that I know of, I'll say, you know, I won't say no, but not that I know of. And this really gets to, uh, you know, how do uh, we validate these kind of measures and how do we move them forward? It's really quite challenging. So as far as I know, in CNS and neurologic disorders, there are no primary endpoints that are digital biomarkers. So uh, an MS drug was uh, approved on a time walking task done in oh, the... Cool. Um, the EMA, European Medicines Agency, has indicated that a gait speed measured at the 95th percentile has been approved as a primary endpoint for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. I'm not sure if that's been done. And I've got a paper in my living room about looking at uh, moderate to vigorous activity as a primary endpoint and can 
as a part failure. So I think there are really not many great examples right now, but that could change in the next six to 12 months. Um, let's yeah. see where I'm going. Are you, uh, Dr. Dicker from Jefferson, uh, our good friend asked us, are you using these tools outside of neurology and psychiatry? Yeah, so we're just now getting a lot of uh, folks who are interested in other areas, you know, and this really has to do with exposure. So we've been working quite a bit with, uh, you know, a large CRO, um, at, you know, uh, to, to uh, look at different areas. And so increasingly in areas like stroke and oncology, where you get a lot of interesting side effects. One, one indication, for example, that people are interested in was literally pal palatability when people are taking medications in oncology. Many of them are quite disgusting and people, you know, <laughs> people gag. You know, but this is a this is just a straightforward disgust response. You know, Paul Ekman, you know, demonstrate how to code disgust, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> Only <laughs> on Chet Talks do you find out that you can get a digital measurement of how, how a pill tastes. Only on Chet Talks. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, you said digital biomarkers are digital measures of uh, biological phenomenon. Uh, can, do you have any data linking the effects of what you're seeing to neural correlates in Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? So there's a very large literature looking at, at um, you know, uh, characteristics like facial expressivity or movement and then, you know, functioning in the motor cortex, other regions of the brain or, or neurotransmitters. We have not done any direct work demonstrating those links on our cell phone data to the biology, but there's a very robust literature in these areas. And that came from Matt Betts. Uh, Edward Schwartz asked, has this technology been adopted across the racial and ethnic spectrum of, human, of humans? Um, well, I don't, you know, I don't quite know how to answer that question. I mean, I can, I can ask the question, answer the question about the, uh, you know, uh, the generalizability of these markers. So, you know, Darwin is actually the first one to talk a bit about the generalizability across age and, and, uh, and, and different ethnic groups. His argument was because they're biologically conserved, we see that. Now it's been confirmed that certain emotions are very much cross-cultural. So for instance, you know, the big five, anger, fear, disgust, uh, sadness, surprise, are highly replicated across uh, different ethnic groups and races. Um, uh, same thing with kind of pitch and tone characteristics. Now, when you get into natural language processing, there's some very interesting things in machine learning that actually cut across cultures, but some of it is very cultural dependent. And the way we use language is very culturally dependent. So we've gotten everyone from uh, Charles Darwin to Muhammad Ali discussed here. Uh, <laughs> wrapping up, uh, you mentioned that I think your daughter used telemedicine. It's, it's having its telemedicine is having its finest hour in the setting of COVID-19 pandemic. Virtualized and virtual and decentralized trials may soon follow, and that's what we focus a lot, a lot on at the Center for Health and Technology. Are digital biomarkers next? Uh, my opinion, 100%. It is the obvious next step. You know, I talked to my wife, who's a clinical psychologist. She has a patient who's a neuro-oncologist, and she said, you know, I'm just asking people about their tremor over, over Zoom. You know, I can't measure it. You know, um, if we're going to have remote assessments, you know, um, you know, why do we go into a physician so they can put a blood pressure cuff on us? You know, they, 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 you know, we need, you know, clinicians, what they do is they measure people and then they prescribe based on that. And so you, so now that we have an interaction, you need to create a way for measurement. And that's got to be digital. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chet Talks. Subscribe to our podcast to learn more insights on health and technology and check out our website at chettalks.org.